One of the most familiar images that I recall growing up in uh, high school, particularly, is the image which is there before you uh, from Campus Crusade, the famous train, fact, faith, and feeling. How many of you have seen that before? Okay, a few of you have. Okay, so I'm a little dated here a little bit, I get that, but the, the idea behind this chart, and it, this was a very, very well-known chart, in fact, this chart, which was appeared in uh, several Campus Crusade tracks, was actually based on earlier 19th century pre evangelistic preaching, which dealt with these three themes quite a bit. But the idea behind the chart was basically that the fact of what God has done in Jesus Christ is the great engine of salvation, the God's redemptive plan, and kind of the synergistic part might be the second car, which is faith. Uh, this is like the cold car, you know, that where you do your part. And then uh, feeling is like the caboose, where, you know, you may have emotional feelings about it when you pray the sinner's prayer. You may not, um, but that's not important. A train can run with or without the caboose. It's a very, very common image. But it's amazing. I have actually looked at this chart for over 40 years. I mean, not every day. This, this, it's not at that level. But, you know, off and on, I've seen this chart for 40 years. And it took me 35 of the 40 years before I noticed the most important part of the chart, which to my memory, and I haven't gone back to review those tracks, but to my memory at least, th this part was never mentioned ever in any of the explanations of this particular diagram the most neglected part of the diagram, the tracks, the train tracks. And if you're in Wilmore, Kentucky, you know that trains can't run without tracks. Do I have any amen from our Callis Village people? Uh, you know, they say if you live in Callis Village or even in the, some of the other ones closer to the tracks, you know, and everybody in Wilmore hears the trains, but if you're there, you feel them. Tracks are essential for trains without which they cannot run. It was on May 10th, 1869, that this country had a very, very important day. Because May 10th, 1869, if you had been in the Great Promontory there in Utah, you would have seen them drive the final stake in what? The Transatlantic Railroad, that's right. It was a huge vision that erupted 10 years earlier so what if we actually connected the eastern rail lines with the western rail lines and connected them? And they, someone did some figuring, and I'm sure there was a little bit of like massaging here. It came out to 1,776 miles of track to be built, 1776. Okay. It, it was a great national vision. It was in all the papers, discussed endlessly, and they, were, they actually raced each other five miles a day, track laying. And finally, on May 10th, 1869, they drove in the famous Golden Spike, which joined it and created the first transatlantic railroad in America. Now, the trains all running could not have run without all those tracks being laid, those difficult, difficult tracks, and the hill died in the process. Now, people often ask, and rightfully so, if in fact Jesus Christ is the only solution to the human predicament, we've already kind of demonstrated that even this point in the series, why in the world wouldn't God the Father have sent his Son into the world in Genesis chapter 3? Wouldn't it have been great if Genesis 3.15 was 
And so God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world and go ahead and take care of it in Genesis 3.15. Instead we get this kind of vague promise about, you know, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. A lot, a lot of work has to be done. It turns out that God's redemption cannot come into the world without tracks being laid. There are a lot of important timbers of law and sacrifice and priesthood and vicariousness and on and on and on. If those tracks are not laid, this train cannot run. And this is really important. You can now, this can now just dismiss it. By the way, I don't want to exegete those cars. That's for another day. We can, oh, we can endlessly discuss those three cars. But generally speaking, those cars I think are helpful. But I wanted you to think about the tracks. And laying tracks uh, is done actually in multiple ways in the Bible. Um, God prepares us for his redemptive work in our lives. And many of you have had tracks laid in your life. And I believe the testimony today was a great example of that, where a painful experience God uses to actually do things in us, to prepare us for the next thing he has for us. There are so many examples of this. And sometimes when we face particularly difficulty, suffering, pain, uh, we're trying to understand the facts of it or the faith in it or whether we have feelings about it or not. And all along, it's really about God laying tracks in our life, God preparing us. And that only happens through oftentimes difficulty and pain. Now, Genesis 22 is really about tracks being laid. And it's about tracks being laid not only in the life of Abraham, which I'll mostly focus on today, but it's also about tracks being laid for all of us in terms of the great unfolding of God's redemptive plan. So if you go to Genesis 22, as you saw the text read, Abraham is asked to do the most difficult thing anyone could ever be asked. And it's, as we'll see, really important we don't read this text in isolation. But certainly as it came to us today, we got the full jolt of it. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. It's this threefold punch, you know, kind of like, there's no way to get out of this. I'm asking you to do the most difficult thing imaginable, to sacrifice your son. Now, this has a double shock to it, and it should. It should doubly shock you. Uh, on the first, most obvious level is the very notion of child sacrifice. By the time this text comes together, the law is, you know, well in place. They... Um, there's no doubt that, you know, people throwing their children to Moloch is a pagan act condemned in the Bible. This is not something we expect from God to ask someone to do. So it's a, it's a shock in terms of just the very idea of child sacrifice. But it's also another shock, and I, I think I saw Bill Arnold. Dr. Arnold is here. I, I, I have to borrow a phrase from you. A beautiful phrase in Dr. Arnold's uh, Genesis commentary, which if you haven't read it, go run to the bookstore, get it, and read it. But there's a great line in there, a right phrase he calls narrative reversal. Okay, that to me is a great phrase. Because you're going through life, and suddenly you hit what you might call a narrative reversal. In other words, everything up to this point has been telling me this is how the story's unfolding. Right? The, the train's going this way, and suddenly... Boom, you're off the tracks, things are blowed up, you're, you're crazy, you're having a narrative reversal moment. Anybody here had a narrative reversal moment? Where, you know, suddenly, like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. All this preparation, the tracks being laid, about Isaac finally coming into the world. And we'll see in a moment, you know, a lot of mislaid tracks there, and how it all worked out, 
how Genesis 12, 3 would be delivered to the, to the people of God and through Abraham and, I, and Sarah. And suddenly, you know, when Isaac is finally comes, he's 100 years old. There's not a lot of time to get this right. We can't, like, go back for a rerun. And suddenly we have this narrative reversal. And so it really is meant to be a, a sh- shocking, shocking kind of experience that comes to us right when faith was kindled, hope is on the rise, trust is increasing, suddenly God comes in and asks something which seems to be counterintuitive to everything we know and all that we see God doing at the point. And this, of course, is not about pitting Abraham's love against his love for his child. That's not what this is about. This is about you know, Abraham's love for God, Abraham's trust in God. His love for his child is, is predicated on the whole event, is predicated on that. All right? So what I want to do is I want to go back a little bit from this account and kind of pan out a little bit and see how the tracks are being laid for this event in Genesis chapter 22. And I think a lot of these lessons that are tests that Abraham learns in his own life of faith, because this whole Genesis 22 is about Abraham being called the father of faith. You don't get to that title without going through some very important tests. So we ourselves have gone through several of these tests that Abraham went through. Let's just go back and refresh our memory. Genesis 12, he has the first test, I would call it the test of you know, the bonds of family in place, which amazingly came out again today in the testimony. Abraham, in Genesis 12, is asked to leave his father, his household, his land, right? Now, if you actually read the text carefully, it's a pluperfect, it actually says the Lord had said to Abram, all right? So it's likely that Abram was first asked to leave Ur of the Chaldees, or perhaps his father. He migrates down without knowing kind of like, what's this all about. It's a little bit like what happens later in the, in the Gospels where Jesus says, come follow me. I'm making fishers of men, okay? Now, I need a little more information, Lord. Uh, if I'm going to leave my livelihood, my family, could you give me a little more f- details about how are we going to make this thing work? None of that said, just kind of like, bang, call. So this is a very, this is what I call disruptive grace, okay? It's a great covenant, it's a grace of God, but it's a, it's a disruptive thing. Leave your land, your people, your family, everything you've known. That's a big, big challenge. And, of course, Jesus returns this in Matthew 10, 37. If you don't love, your, love me more than your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. It's one of the root tests that we have. Faith, our trust in God over our place and our family, all those things which occasionally we are called to, to leave. And many of you have left from uh, you know, Texas or Oklahoma or Mississippi or wherever to come to Wilmore, Kentucky. So you've got this test. Some of you have got it. I got it. I've never been to Kentucky, I think, except just like passing through. Next thing God says, guess what? You're moving there. So this is it. We all understand that. The second uh, test comes later in Genesis 14, which we did talk about. And this is the test of provisions. Remember when uh, Abram comes down, they have the big rout of the kings and all of that, and eventually they have the uh, lots taken, and Abraham goes with his 316 men, and they actually recapture Lot and his nephew and all their belongings, and all of this huge potential you know, spoils of war comes to Abram. And he, as we know, he gives us a tie to Melchizedek, which we looked at last time. But you recall, he refuses to take one, I love the phrase, 
He, I will not even take one thread of a sandal, the one thread of a thong of a sandal, lest you say someday to the king of Sodom, I help make Abram rich. Okay, that was a very, very important test. Because the whole point was, was Abraham, he'd been given the promise that I will make your name great, Genesis 12, 3. You will be great. I will make you a great nation. And so here he had the opportunity where he had all this spoil came to him. It's like, it wouldn't be easy to say, wow, I, I won the lottery. This is it. This is part of God's plan. And so he said, no, 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 no. That's not the way God planned it. God will make me great, not man. So he refuses that. That's a very important. The test of provision, trusting God for your provisions is really, really important. And if we had testimony time for the rest of the hour, then we could, many of you could give testimony to this point, how God has provided for you in amazing ways. And that's one of the great tests of life. And my wife and I, Julie, is here. We've had so many times where God miraculously came through for us when we needed it, when we had nothing to trust in but God's provision. And God came through and did things for us because he was preparing for us, laying tracks. So these tests that Abraham had lay tracks, he goes deeper, lays tracks, go deeper. The third test that Abraham has, he, the first time around, he fails. Now, this is the test of what I would call collaboration. Now, Abraham, at this point in Genesis, has the clear command from God that he will be made into a great nation, and his descendants is, is as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, the dust of the earth. There's three metaphors given. So Abraham is, Abraham is literally taken out underneath the, the, the starry sky. And the text says, quite plainly, he says, uh, you know, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. There's no doubt. In fact, Romans 4 makes it very clear. Abraham, in fact, did believe God. Now, what happens when you have a promise from God, what do you do about it? Now, the synergism comes in because we, we often err on one of two sides. And I won't say which side that we typically fall on, but let's just, you can figure it out. Typically, Christians fall on one side or the other of this line in, in, in dangerous ways. The first side is where we say, hey, God has promised it. That's it. He'll do it. I'm going to be a passive observer of it. This is the monergistic kind of approach to everything, where God does it all. If you do anything at all, then, you know, it's, it's, then you're interrupting God's sovereignty. All right, so this is kind of a passive approach to the whole thing, and therefore we end up being more or less passive observers, and we're not appropriately engaged in God's work as his co-redeemers in the world. But the other side of the problem is the other side where you say, yeah, I got God's promise, and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help make it happen. This is, the, this is like best summarized, in, and maybe this dates me too, but in the famous bumper sticker that I used to see a lot growing up, God is my co-pilot. Has anybody seen that? Let me just say something bluntly here, okay, for the seminarians of the world. God is not your co-pilot. God's not anyone's co-pilot, all right? He's the pilot. Maybe you're his co-pilot, and he's not your co-pilot, all right? So that, that's the, pro, the God's not co-pilot idea is exactly what happens to Abram. He gets the promise, he believes in it, and then he says, okay, let's make it happen. 
Sarah is 90-something years old. She's not bearing fruit, uh, bearing, bearing child, ch children. This is a problem. God made this promise. And so let's bring Hagar into the context, her maidservant, and let's make it happen, and Ishmael comes. All right, this is Abram making it happen. Well, this is later. It goes all the way through. Moses does this, you know, when he wants to deliver Israel, so he kills the Egyptian, hides him in the sand, you know. This was Moses' like deliverance act. All the way through, you could trace the Bible, the times where the people of God get God's promise, believe in it, then they take it on their own hands to make it happen. I know none of you have ever done this before. Other people do these things. This is something that we have to really be on their toes about. So Abram basically fails the test, the third test of synergistic collaboration. So the Lord, uh, and this is the great thing about the grace of God, because there are many of you here in this room, and all of us here in this room, I'm supreme among you, who God has brought a moment of instruction in your life. I use the word test because the Bible used the word test here in Genesis 22, but instruction, point, or a catechesis moment in your life. That sounds better. And just failed it, utterly failed it. You know, Jonah is sitting inside the whale, or the great fish. He failed the test. He's called to do something, and now, next thing he's, he's inside, the, inside the fish. Well, the question is, though, is Jonah a better preacher of the gospel to the Ninevites because he went through the experience with the fish? He's better. He understands it. He understands repentance because he just had to do it, you know, two days earlier. So here we are. Many of you, all of us in some ways, have failed various things that come into our lives, and that God in his grace allows us to, to move to the next level by providing a, uh, another opportunity. This happens to Abram. And it gets to Genesis 20, um, or in just 18, where, okay, the Lord, we're told there in Genesis 18, the Lord stands before Abram, Abraham at this point. Now, that's very unusual language in Hebrew. Because as you know, we, we stand before God God never, never stands before us. This is a very, very unusual text. The Lord stands before Abraham and says, I'm not going to hide from you what I'm about to do. I'm going to destroy Tudor and Gomorrah. What are you going to do about it? What's your role in this? And it's the most unusual passage. Here God basically says to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to do these things alone. This is the great point about synergistic collaboration it's not that God cannot do it on his own. It's not a question of his sovereignty. It's about God's plan. One of the great Wesleyan insights is that God does his work with us. He won't do it without you. So he'd say, challenge him. Okay, what are you going to do about this? Are you going to uh, just sit you know, idly by or are you going to start bombing Sodom? What are you going to do? And so Abraham begins to enter into like, a, you know, like an Eastern bazaar you know, kind of bargaining thing. Well, Lord, um, what if, you know, only 45? I mean, if it's like a 50 righteous, you will spare the city. What if only 45, five less? Okay, I won't do it. How about 40? Then it went to 30, then 20, then 10. I mean, the whole thing is like haggling over uh, something you buy in the marketplace. And, of course, what's so amazing is that, see, Abraham is being brought into this whole experience as being a co-redeemer with God because judgment is part of God's redemption in the world. He's being part of God's plan in the world. And he actually has a meaningful part in it. Now, when we say co-redeemer, we don't mean co-meaning equal. That's impossible, of course. 
but co-meaning the sense that we participate in meaningful ways in God's unfolding plan that's redemptively significant, salvifically determinative, that we actually have meaningful role to play in God's work. And what amazes the, in the whole story is that after all is said and done, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah has, is not tinged on how many wicked people there are in Sodom and Gomorrah. We spend so much time complaining about the wickedness of the world, but the real tinging turning point was the presence, the lack of the righteous, not the presence of the wicked. Which reminds us of the importance of we should probably complain less about the evil in the world and more about the evil in the church. That's another sermon, though. Let's put that aside. The point being, Abraham passed the test. He understood there was a meaningful collaboration with God, and he had to get it right and listen to God and let God take the lead in the whole thing. But to have his part, he does that. We finally go to the fourth, which is the test before us, what I call the test of absolute trust in Genesis 22. So you can see, I think it's 22, a lot of tracks have been laid. There were some failed tracks and eventually tracks relayed. But you have a lot of things that happened with Abraham trusting God for you know, separating family, separating from his land, separating for trusting provision, and the kind of role he would play in this redemptive plan. And now we get to the, the test of absolute trust. And text opens up, and there's so many things about this text because it, the first verse actually says, sometime later. It's easy to read over that. But I don't want to read over that because this is like 10 years later. Now, some of you are somewhere between the failed test and the sometime later when God comes and brings you to the next level. That's a tough place to be in, isn't it? All right, well, often we read these, these narratives and we kind of go from chapter to chapter and we don't realize the time involved, the, the process involved, the tracks being laid. It took 10 years to connect those railroads Many times it takes God 10 years to work in our lives what he wants to work in our lives. I've had so many experiences the last 10 years of my life that I could not have had my first, you know, 40-something years. And it, it took back, it took me 35 years to notice the tracks. See, there's things you just don't notice, you don't see, and God has to work these things into your lives. And Abraham had this. And so the Lord, it says, tested Abraham, and the Lord, we're told, Hebrews 11, of course, uh, tells us, gives us, I think, the only really kind of insight in Abraham's thinking at this moment. When he's told to sacrifice Isaac, Hebrews 11 says, Abraham reasoned, okay, he says, I know God's promise will, will be kept. He's the God of the covenant. I know that it's through Isaac. Yeah, I know God's also called me to sacrifice him. Therefore, God must be prepared to raise Isaac from the dead. That was Abraham's reasoning, according to Hebrews 11. So he, he goes ahead with it, because he's in this point of trusting God. Because God said, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham takes the wood on Isaac's back. They climb Mount Moriah. Okay, this is the place where eventually the temple would be built. This is the Holy of Holies. will be on this spot, the Ark of the Covenant. This is a very sacred spot in the history of redemption. And I've stood, many of you have perhaps as well, some of you have, but I've stood on Mount Moriah, on the Temple Mount, 
Uh, the exact location of this, of course, is disputed endlessly, but somewhere on this spot, all of these sacred things happen in the history of redemption. So here's Abraham on that spot with his son carrying wood on his back, climbing up to Mount Moriah. He play, and, of course, the son asked the question, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham responds, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. This is amazing, isn't it? He, of course, lays Isaac on the wood. He raises his, his hand with a knife. And in the Hebrew text, there's this beautiful, powerful addressing of the angel, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. For now I know that you fear God, that you have passed the, the test of absolute faith. And it is because of that that Abraham is called the father of faith. That's how he earned the title. It didn't come as a, like, it wasn't just handed out, you see. God doesn't hand titles out like that. They, they come through many painful moments of trial and testing and failure and retesting and moving to train tracks forward in his life to that point when he does, does this. But of course, when you take the lens out and you look at this not just from Abraham's perspective, but from the perspective of all of eternity, it's not just about the faith of Abraham, is it? It's about the faithfulness of God. We saw God working that somehow or another this is all happening so that in the fullness of time, God would send forth his son into the world. And again, the timbers of law and faith and sacrifice and priesthood and vicariousness and judgment and covenant, all these things had to be laid so Christ could come into the world. This is like the dress rehearsal, one of the dress rehearsals for Christ coming into the world. Of course, Abraham foreshadows and prepares us that God, what, what he did, what God himself would do by sending his son into the world, by wood being placed on his back, by him climbing that other mountain, Mount Calvary. But when the knife of our sin was raised to be plunged into the life of Christ, there was no voice that cried out to stop it. God offered up his son for our salvation. This, of course, ultimately becomes, this is the, the, the if there is an answer, this is the kind of theodicy moment, you might say, in the sense that, that this is the, the way the Bible reconciles God's goodness with God's sovereignty is not with those kind of, is God good, all-powerful, but by helping us to connect our narrative with all of its pain and suffering with God's narrative of his big plan where even that pain or that situation is somehow or another brought up into the larger narrative of what God is doing in the world, which is redemptive, which is powerful, which is hopeful, which ultimately will be the new creation. And Abraham gives us a point to that. And someday God would send his son into the world to take away the sins of the world. See, it's about God's faith in us, his belief in us to be co-bearers with him in this journey is so powerful. I mean, the atheists say today, I don't believe in God. But the real powerful truth is that God still believes in them. God still has a plan for them. And this, this God will not let the unredeemed world continue on in their unredemption world life. He is always plotting and planning for their redemption. 
And there's no greater ministry than that in your life. If you can go out and realize that God has called us to be co-participants with God in raising up us to help extend his redemption to the world. It's his work, but we, get to, we are called to be part of it. We're called to join with him in this work. And so what was once a great foreshadowing of the great sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement is seen here, ultimate sacrificial system, ultimately fulfilled in the mystery of faith and the fullness of time in Jesus Christ. But when Christ comes, we discover that it is not simply a recollection of Abraham as the father of faith, it's really all about the one who has the great faith, which is Jesus Christ himself, the author and perfecter of faith. Abraham's faith, my faith, your faith. It is his faith that carries us through our journeys and our tracks he's laid in our lives to bring us to that point that he's called us to be. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the promise and the keeper of the promise. You are both the redeemer and the redemption of the world. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us in this day to recognize your work and see that it is part of a great plan that you're unfolding in the world, that we get to be a part of your work. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.